Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You are so very welcome to join me today as we work through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we're continuing our journey, season three, and our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. It's so great to have you here again this morning. You're joining a community of people who've made the decision to make the study, the in-depth study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. Every day, Monday to Friday, there's an episode posted and also a compilation episode posted at the weekend. Now, if you're here for the first time, then please consider subscribing and that way you'll never miss another episode. Always free, always freely available, always in the public domain for you to use in whatever way you want. So thank you again for joining me and do hang on at the end when I'll update you about the ways in which you can connect and access other teaching resources that I also make freely available. So with that in mind, we'll just pick up where we left off last time. Okay, people, here we are. We're picking up again in Matthew chapter 12 at verse 9, looking at how Jesus is handling this opposition that is starting to appear everywhere he goes. And we've just had the situation that Jesus has moved on from, so let's continue where we left off last time by looking at how Jesus will deal with the specific rising opposition against him. And this time we're going to look at how he compares and contrasts the love of God with the law as it's being interpreted when he goes to the synagogue and confronts the situation of this poor man suffering from what is described as a as a withered hand. So, picking up verse 9, it says, He left there and he went into their synagogue. And there was a man there with a withered hand. So they asked him, Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? They asked this question in order that they might find an accusation against him. What man will there be of you, he said, who would have a sheep, and if the sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, would not take a grip of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is man than a sheep? So then it is permitted to do a good thing on the Sabbath day. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored, signed as the other. So the Pharisees went away and conferred against him to find a way to destroy him. Wow, what a reaction to the healing of a suffering man. Well, this incident is a crucial moment in the life of Jesus. He has deliberately and publicly broken the Sabbath law in front of these religious leaders. And the result is that they go away and they have a sort of conference to search out a way, it tells us, to eliminate him, but no doubt to try and do it legitimately according to their view of the laws of Moses. Now, it's difficult to understand the attitude of these scribes and these Pharisees unless we understand how amazingly seriously they took the Sabbath law. You see, the law forbid all work on the Sabbath, that is true, but and these religious leaders by this time would literally die rather than break the law. Some interesting examples of this attitude that had grown amongst the Jews at this time are available from other historical documents. For example, at the time of the rising of the Jewish people under a guy called Judas Maccabeus in the second century, certain Jews sought refuge in the caves in the wilderness. The Seleucid 
king, Antiochus, sent a detachment of men to attack them, and the attack was made on the Sabbath day, and these insurgent Jews died without even a gesture of defiance or self-defense, because for them to fight would have been to break the Sabbath. A book at that time was written called First Maccabees, which tells how the forces of Antiochus recorded these events, and it writes, They gave them battle with all speed, howbeit they answered them not, neither cast they a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid, but said, Let us die in our innocence, heaven and earth shall testify for us, that we have been put to death wrongfully. So they rose up against them in battle on the Sabbath, and they slew them, their wives and their children, and their cattle, to the number of over a thousand people. And that's from 1 Maccabees chapter 2. You see, even in a national crisis, even in order to save their lives, even to protect their nearest and dearest, the Jews would not fight on the Sabbath. On another occasion, we see it is written about the Jews insisting on keeping the Sabbath law is when Pompey was able to attack and take Jerusalem. Now, in ancient warfare, it was the custom of the attacker to erect a huge mound which would overlook the battlements of the besieged city from a height higher in order to bombard the defences of a city. And Pompey, he arrived at Jerusalem and he prepared for his attack by building his mound little by little on the Sabbath. And the Jews simply looked on and refused to lift a hand to stop him. Jophesus, the famous historian, writes and says, And had it not been for the practice from the days of their forefathers to rest on the seventh day, this bank would never have been built. That's from Josephus's Antiquities chapter 14. There was a long-held religious principle of the Jews that they would not raise a hand in battle or do anything that could be perceived as work on the Sabbath. Josephus also recalls the amazement of a previous Greek historian who centuries earlier had written about the way in which when Ptolemy was allowed to capture Jerusalem, a guy called Akrathshides wrote, There are people called the Jews there who dwell in a city the strongest of cities, a city which the inhabitants call Jerusalem, and their custom is to rest on the seventh day, at which time they make no use of their arms, nor take care of any of their affairs of public life, but spread out their hands in their holy places and pray till evening time. Now it came to pass that when Ptolemy came into the city with his army, these men, in observing this mad custom of theirs, instead of guarding the city, suffered their country to submit itself to a bitter lord. And that's Josephus writing in an article called Against Appion. You see, this rigorous Jewish observance of the Sabbath seems to other nations to be nothing sort of insanity because it could lead to such amazing national defeats and disasters. And we have to understand that it is that absolutely immovable frame of mind that Jesus is going up against here. The original law of Moses quite definitely did not forbid healing on the Sabbath. In fact, it was written in supplemental records that every case where life is in danger supersedes the Sabbath law. But even that had become defined as, well, okay, if that's the case, then someone can take steps to avoid someone getting worse on the Sabbath, but they could do nothing to make someone actually better. Now, in this case, of course, there's no question that the paralyzed man's life was not an immediate danger, 
In fact, he would be in no worse condition the following day than he was this day if he wasn't healed. And Jesus knew this and he knew their attitude towards the law. But he also knew what he was doing and what he was going to do. He knew that these Pharisees were waiting and watching and yet he still chose to heal this man. And this is because Jesus would accept no supplemental rule to the law of God which insisted that anyone should suffer one minute longer than was necessary. His love for humanity, like God his Father's, far surpassed his respect for any ritual observance of the law. So it seems like these Pharisees have almost issued a challenge to Jesus. What are you going to do? Well, he accepts that challenge and we see Jesus. He goes into the synagogue where this man is with the paralyzed hands. But remember, the scribes and the Pharisees are there too, watching and waiting. They're in the synagogue. They know this man, but they're not concerned about the state of this man with his paralyzed hands. Their only concern is the minutiae of their rules and regulations. So they ask Jesus, they cross and examine him and they say, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath day? Now Jesus knew to that answer to that question perfectly and he knew all the stuff I've been talking about so far. He knew perfectly well that by doing what he was doing it could create an actual danger to his life because healing was forbidden by their interpretation of the law because it was regarded ironically as an act of work. But Jesus chose to respond initially by debating the law with them. Tell me, he says, suppose a man, in other words, suppose one of you has a sheep and that sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath day. Will you not go and help pull the sheep out of the pit? Now, he uses that example because that was a specific case which the law provided for in the writings of the Torah. It allowed for an intervention. It said that if an animal did fall into a pit on the Sabbath, then it was within the law to take it food and it was also within the law to use your hook to to drag it out, to assist it out of the trap, which in any other circumstances would be interpreted as carrying a burden. So there was a caveat that allowed this. So Jesus is saying here, look, in God permitting us to do a good thing in this, on the Sabbath and permitting us to do a good thing to a sheep of all things, then how much more would it be lawful for us as men or women to help other men and women? Because people are much more valuable to God than any animal. Jesus has reversed their argument against them. If he argued it is right to do good in the Sabbath, then the refusal to do good can in fact be reasonably interpreted as evil. It was Jesus' basic principle that at no time in life is anything so holy that it cannot be superseded by helping another fellow human being who is in genuine need or suffering because the core principle of the heart of God towards humankind in other words is more holy to express the love of God in compassion in other words it's almost more holy so to speak to do the compassionate thing you see in the great scheme of things we will not be judged by the number of church services we've attended or by the number of chapters of the bible we have read this year or even by the number of hours we've spent in prayer, but ultimately we are judged in our Christian life by how we have responded and helped people when a genuine need came before us. Upon hearing what Jesus said, it appears that the scribes and the Pharisees have no answer to it. Their argument had recoiled on their own heads. So Jesus heals this man, and in healing him, gives him three things. He gives him back his health, 
Now, Jesus is always interested in the physical state that we might find ourselves in, whether or not we're aware of it or not, and whether or not they're believers or not. Actually, from the Christian point of view, doctors are by their profession meant to be fellow workers with God. The doctor is meant to be, and is, even if he doesn't know it, an instrument of God's grace. And the medicine that they've studied and learned is a dispensation of the grace of God. God, in his goodness, always has an empathy with sick people. And his desire is that they be provided with remedies for their sickness, even sometimes when that very illness is the consequences of their sin. John Calvin, he described medicine as a gift from God. He who heals men is serving God. Now another thing Jesus did in giving back his health to this man, he gave him back his capacity to work. Without work, an individual can feel they have no real purpose in life. In being active in life through work, or through a family role, we can find real meaning and purpose in life. Over the years, unemployment can become something that is harder to bear than illness itself. One of the greatest things any human being can do for another is to give them the ability to work or to serve other people. So because Jesus gave this man back his health, he gave him back his capacity to work, he also gave him back his self-respect. A person can really feel human again when they can face life with a sense of independence that they are able to provide for their own needs and also help meet the needs of those dependent on them or just basically help other people. We have already said that this incident was going to create a real crisis reaction in the minds of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And at the end of this, the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they go off and debate, and it actually turns into nothing more than a plot to plan the death of Jesus. It shows that he's regarded as not only dangerous, but as effective in what he's doing. And the action of the scribes and Pharisees is a measure of the power of the ministry of Jesus, not only to help people to be effective in changing people and changing their outlook. And for us today, Christianity may well be hated by people, but the thing to remember is if it's effective, true Christianity, it can never be disregarded. Okay, we're going to pick up the text at verses 18 through to 21. We'll finish off this today. And uh, it's telling us a little bit more about the characteristics of this servant of the Lord and of, in general, a servant of the Lord. And it tells us, So these events have just happened, and then it tells us, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from this place. So he's aware of what the scribes and the Pharisees have been plotting, and he withdraws from the place. It then says, a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill, and he warned them not to tell others about him. And he said this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And here he is quoting Isaiah. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I will delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations, plural, will put their hope. There's two things going on here at once. One is that Jesus shows that he never confuses courage with recklessness. So first of all, it tells us that he initially withdraws. 
which means that he recognised the time for a head-on clash with the authorities had not yet come, and that was because he had much work to do before he would face the cross. And secondly, he tells the people not to publicise what he's done. Now, he knew only too well that many false messiahs had arisen and come along, and he also knew how too easily people were inflamed by these people appearing. If the idea got around that someone with miraculous powers had emerged, then certainly it's very likely that a political rebellion would have arisen on the back of that, and maybe lives, many lives, would have been needlessly lost. Jesus, you see, has come and he has recognised that he first has to teach people about his messiahship and that it was different to perhaps what they had imagined. So he was saying, yes, the messiah is here, but I've not come wielding a sword. I've not come wielding uh, military power or political power. I've not come to chuck out the Roman oppressors. Rather, the messiahship he had come to present to the people was one of sacrificial service. The power of the cross and the sacrificial servant life had to be embraced first before his messiahship and the story of his coming could be spread further afield. In other words, the power of the cross had to come before the power of his throne. Now the question which Matthew quotes Jesus answering with is actually a complete quote from the work of the prophet Isaiah. It's actually chapter 42 the first four verses if you want to look it up. Now in a sense this seems a strange quotation to use because in its first usage in its original instance it refers to Cyrus the Persian king. The original point of the question at the time it was written was addressing a very particular political situation. Cyrus was sweeping onwards in his conquests And Isaiah saw that although this conquest of the people was actually within the plan of God, the deliberate and definite plan of God, and although the people did not know it, Cyrus, who was Persian, was being used as an instrument of God. Also, Isaiah was one of the few who recognized that Cyrus was in fact a relatively gentle conqueror, as indeed he would turn out to be. So although the original words of this prophecy refer to the events around Cyrus, the complete fulfillment of the prophecy, he's saying undoubtedly, is going to come about in Jesus Christ. In other words, Cyrus was just a type, the events of Cyrus were just a type of that which would come to full fruition in Jesus Christ. Now in his day, the Persian king had indeed mastered a region of the Middle East, But here in Jesus, the true master of the entire world was come. And in him, you can see how wonderfully and fully Jesus fulfilled the forecast that was made by Isaiah the prophet. He will tell all the nations and show all the nations what the justice of God is and what the love of God is. Jesus has come, yes, to bring men and women to justice, And the Greeks define justice as giving fairly to God, which was his due, and to people what was their due. So Jesus coming here, fulfilling, showing people how to live a life in such a way that both God and the other people may receive their proper place in our lives. And the proper place of other people comes through this servant, messiahship, leadership approach to our ministry and life. He showed us how to behave both to God and towards other people. 
But secondly, by the use of this quotation, it tells us not to strive because it's saying that Jesus did not cry aloud, nor will we, anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, the word that is very sort of undramatically translated as crying out for us is a word that is actually used for the annoying sound of a barking dog or the brawling of drunken men in the streets, or even it would be used of uproar of disconsent from an audience at the events in the theatre. And what it's telling us is that Jesus, and thereby us as followers of Jesus, must never brawl with people, so to speak. In Jesus, there was a quiet, strong serenity of one who seeks to conquer people, yes, but conquer by love, and not by strife, and not by harsh words. And thirdly, it points out that he will not break the crushed reed, nor quench the smoking wick. The reed may be bruised, they may hardly be able to stand, and the wick of the candle may be weak, and its light may be reduced to a flicker. But Jesus in coming, he says, regardless of how much a person's witness or life may be shaky and weak, the light of life may just be a flicker, not a flame, but Jesus has come to revive. Jesus has not come to discourage, but to encourage. He did not come to treat the spiritually frail with contempt, but with understanding. And he did not come to extinguish the weak flame of faith, but to nurse it back to a bright and strong thing, a bright and stronger light. The most precious thing about Jesus is the fact that he is not ever the discourager, but for everyone who chooses to follow him, he is indeed the great encourager. And finally, in him, we see through the use of this quotation from Isaiah that all the Gentiles of the world will find hope. All the nations of the world can find their hope. When Jesus came into the world, the invitation would no longer be to just one nation, but to all the people of earth, an invitation to accept the truth and the love of God as revealed through him and in the scriptures. And in him, God was seen to be reaching out to everyone with the offer of his love and the forgiveness of their sin. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I do hope you find that a helpful passage and we'll continue with the narrative picking up at the next verse tomorrow. Now, if you are here for the first time, I did mention subscribe, and I'd just like to point out that there are various ways that you can connect to other free resources I make available. There's always a complete transcript of everything I've said available in the episode notes of wherever you're getting your podcast from, and there's always links to other places and ways in which you can connect with the ministry and receive more teaching. Now, if those active links aren't appearing within wherever you're getting your podcast from, then just go straight to the pod hosting website, which is thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com, and the links will all definitely be active there. And there, you can connect with us on a more meaningful level if you wish. And I would ask that if you are enjoying or appreciating this, or finding it helpful or of value, then can please consider liking, sharing it, maybe sending a link to a friend so that other people can make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. But that's it for today. Thank you again for joining me. You've joined a community of people who've decided to bring the Bible closely into the orbit of their daily lives. 
and I do hope I'll see you back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. It'll be whatever day it happens to be for you. You click and open up and listen to another episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.